Welcome to 66 Lessons for Life, the weekly radio program recorded live at the Naples Conference Center in Naples, Florida. Taught by our teacher, John Garepa, an attorney who guides us in the way of wisdom with a biblical worldview. You're invited to join us for the study. We are in the Gospel of John. We're going to finish the Gospel of John chapter 11. And at this point, I want to focus as I wrap this up in chapter 11 about the enemies of Jesus as they coalesce and they determine not only to kill Jesus, but to kill Lazarus because they are concerned that there are too many people who are being drawn to Jesus and Lazarus is bringing people to Jesus as well. And so the religious elite conclude that they must go. So if you turn to uh, the uh, chapter 11, look at verse 51, you can follow along as I read. And now it says, he did not say that, it is referring to Caiaphas. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the Jews. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the desert to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from, from the country to Jerusalem for the ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple area, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the feast at all? But the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone found out where Jesus was, he should report it so that they might arrest him. So you get this scene. It's all coming together. The enemies of Christ are coalescing. He has to go. And this is being handed, really headed, by the Sanhedrin. And Caiaphas is the chief priest of the Sanhedrin. I told you he was a Sadducee. They did not believe in the resurrection. These people were like really political appointees. Uh, and even though they, had, they were Jews, they weren't religious Jews, as distinguished from the Pharisees, who were religious but were literal fundamentalists. They were legalists. And so, obviously, Jesus called, cut them both out. These weren't what God wanted people to be. And so here they are, these two groups, deciding that Jesus must die. Jesus must go. And, and yet, even though they, they are so committed to killing Christ, it's amazing how God can have pagans prophesy about God himself. Because here's a passage where Caiaphas, who as far as I'm concerned, even though he's got the uh, title of chief priest, is in no way a religious figure, winds up saying that it's better for one man to die than an entire nation to perish. Well, stand back and guess what? You're right. It is better that one man dies, then we should all die in sin. And so there he is saying that phrase, not even recognizing that God had turned that phrase and turned it for good. And this is one of the first lessons of today, and that is this, that God is in charge of everything, even the language and words that comes out of our mouth. And one of the life uh, uh, verses for me that really resonates in my life is where Joseph 
after spending about 25 years away from his family, sold into slavery, ultimately sent to prison, and yet God rescuing him and letting him rise to the title of prime minister of Egypt. He stands there 25 years later as his brothers come before him, begging to be saved, and Joseph reveals who he is. Yes, I'm your brother. I'm the one you sold into slavery. And there they are, uh, freaking out effectively, that here is the guy that they did all this damage to. And Joseph says to them, Fear not what you did for evil. God did for good. God turns the very aspect of evil against you and makes it good. And I can tell you this, that in my life, so many times when I look back about things that were evil, things that were bad that were done to me, and not even recognizing at the time, not even recognizing at the time that it was God's will in my life. And I told you that the fact that I'm here today in ministry, in this church, in this lecture, doing what I'm doing on the radio, is solely because God took what was evil against me and turned it for good. And I didn't know it at the time. And it would only take several decades later to see that. And so I want to assure that to you now, that those of you who are suffering and going through some hard times, that God's in control of your life. And here's the other point of this. Look at at the other lesson here. Because Pilate, conscious of what the Jewish leadership is doing to Jesus, and fearful of the fact, oh, this guy has said Jesus is calling himself King of the Jews, and Caiaphas is using that title against Jesus, using it to see that he's killed. Pilate, so concerned about this, decides to put a sign over Jesus' head on the cross that says, here is the king of the Jews. Now, can you imagine? A pagan, a pagan, who ultimately will give the permission to have Christ crucified, winds up saying the very fact that is prophesied and true. Yes, here is the king of the Jews. Boy, you see how God works mysteriously, even in the, in the minds of pagans who, who don't even recognize what they're saying. And so what you're seeing is that God will use even wrathful, evil men to advance the kingdom of God. I want you to understand that, to advance the kingdom of God. Nothing is going to stop God from the advancement of his word and advancement of his kingdom. Uh, and so this is important to, to understand. I want, want to make something else clear to you. As we come to this seminal point, we are now about to enter the last week of the life of Jesus. The entire half of John's gospel is now going to be devoted to the last seven days of his life. And the key issue of this, obviously, is that Jesus will give up his life voluntarily on the cross for us. Now, I want to say a few things to underscore what this means. I want you to realize something, that from the very foundation of the world, God, God knew that we would fall, that humanity would fall. Even as he was creating it in his foreknowledge, he knew that we would fall to sin. And I believe firmly that in that council, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, in that council, at that point, when this is taking place, when the very creative elements are taking place, and the knowledge is that humanity itself would need a Savior, that Jesus stepped up and said, I will be that Savior. God 
gives him that role. I want you to think about how great that is. That God himself would step forward from the beginning of time to be our Savior. Now, here's another point to understand. God did not die for all humanity. And I know what you're saying right now. What? What are you saying? No, God did not die for all humanity. And the reason that I say that is, frankly, millions upon millions of human beings will die every year without accepting Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. God did not die for people that don't accept him. That would be taking the death of Jesus and putting it in vain. God does nothing in vain. But God, through Jesus Christ, dies on the cross for those people who will accept him. And I want to assure you this, that God knew from the time that you were created, he knew the decision that you would make, and therefore Jesus had your name on his palm at the time that he went to, to the cross. This was not an abstract act. This was not an abstract act of salvation. This was a discrete, definite plan of salvation created from the beginning of time before the very foundations of the world. And so this is important to understand. And it's equally important for you to understand, and I'm going to reiterate it today, because I don't want a single person to ever leave here without making certain that they've accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. I don't care where you've been baptized. I don't care where you go to church. I don't care that your grandparents have been going to church and you've been going to church for your whole life. The question is, have you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Have you given him your life? And you need to do that. You need to understand that. As we understand this last week in his life, and you see the great commitment of God, that God himself would bankrupt heaven. He would bankrupt heaven. He would take Jesus himself, Jesus himself, and send him here to this world to die for us because it was that critical, that critical. You know, it's one of the questions that was asked me at Florida Gulf Coast. Well, why would God, why would God create us knowing that we needed a savior? He's God. He didn't have to create us this way. Why would he do that? And, I, and the point is, that's right. You and your puny mind have a view of how God should be. You know, that's right. God should create robots. Instead, let's understand something. God, from the beginning of Genesis to Revelation, God has made it clear he wants a relationship with humanity. Why? Beats me. Honestly, why would God want that? I'm not God. I don't have an answer, but I accept it. For some reason, the creator of the universe has determined that he wants a personal relationship with these lumps of clay that we call humanity. That's what he wants. And so he has created us with the very ability to shake our fist at him and spit in his eye and reject him. Why? Because there will be that element of humanity who will reach up to him in love and say, God, forgive me. I'm lost. I need a savior. And when that happens, he reaches out across eternity for that one person. He reaches out and secures them, eternally secures them. And that's why God gives us the ability to walk away and reject him. And so that's, that's something for us to understand here. I want you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. How do you like that? He created you for the very purpose to be saved. He knew who you were. He knew ahead of time the decisions you would make. And he wanted that relationship for you. And he wanted you to be saved. And he wanted you to be saved not only while you were alive, because he wanted to have that ongoing relationship with you when you are asleep, or in biblical language, when you are dead and sitting there with him in heaven. So, the question now becomes this. Here it is. All the events of that world, the greatest uh, week in the history of the world, coming together. And so the question becomes now, for whom is Christ dying? For whom is Christ dying? You're going to have to answer this question for family and friends who may not understand who Jesus is. For whom is Christ dying? Turn to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. I had a Jewish man I knew who was uh, a devout Jew. came into my office. He was a lawyer. And I said to him, as we were discussing Christ, I wanted to get the points in about who Christ was. He was a conservative Jew, and he knew the Bible. And I said, uh, Ira, what do you think about Isaiah 53? Here it is. What do you think? Oh, he goes, no. I don't like to read anything that undermines my faith. <laughs> I'm not making it up. I'm not making it up. That's right. I don't want to read anything that undermines my faith. Well, let's not be like that. All right? If it's in here, if it's in here, then it's true. You can take it to the bank. All right? You can take it to the bank. Isaiah 53 Verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. We're speaking of Jesus now, 800 years before his birth. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. You want to know who Jesus died for? There it is. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. 800 years before his birth. Make no mistake about it. It all ties together. And so you see this. And so Jesus now is giving his life as a ransom, voluntarily, voluntarily stepping up to give his life as a ransom. And we know that scripture says that the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. And so here it is. Make no mistake about it. It's quite clear. Jesus is doing this as a propitiation for the sins of his people. Yes? Yes, the gospel of the Old Testament. Once said, exactly right, Isaiah 53, the gospel of the Old, Old Testament. So here's the point of understanding this, that the uh, death of Christ was an atonement, not in the abstract, but in the certain. It wasn't for some metaphysical act that could take place. It was for you. It was for the Jewish people, and eventually it was for all of the Gentiles who ultimately would give up uh, and say to Christ, accept me, Lord. And when we say that, all of that, all of that is taking place and is ransomed at the cross. And so here you get, here you understand this, here you now see all of this coming together. All of this coming together in the last week of Jesus' life. And you notice how Jesus goes to Ephraim. 
There he goes. It's a small little desert outpost outside of Jerusalem because he doesn't want to be, he doesn't want to be confronted by the religious elites. He knows the scripture. He knows what God wants. He knows that this is all painted in the heavens. It's all going to take place. He knows he's going to die. He knows he's going to die on the cross. He knows the most disgusting, evil things are about to happen to him. And he's going to be spat upon. He's going to be beaten. And yet Jesus will willingly walk into Jerusalem. He will willingly take that. And anybody that says that Jesus looked for a way out doesn't know the Bible. You don't know the Bible because the gates of hell were prevailing against Christ himself. And yet he would not be stopped. And you're going to see as we study this, and we're about to go into uh, chapter 12, you're going to see now how Mary, Mary, the sister of Lazarus, is going to sit there and is going to make this incredible gift, this sacrifice to her. And she will be the one person in this entire group of personages, the one person who will recognize that Christ is about to die. How do you like that? The one person. And I'm telling you something, ladies. The more and more I study scripture, it strikes me that the people that seem to have the greatest discernment are women. I see it in the early church. I want you to understand that. Who were the first people? That's right. Clap for yourself. Clap for yourself. Clap for yourself. You're absolutely right. Because here's the deal. Here's the deal. Who were the first people Jesus appeared to when he rose from the grave? Women. Women. And so look, all I'm telling you is I don't care really, what religious denominations say. All I know is what the Bible tells me, and the Bible tells me that you people are raised up and affirmed, that God loves you, that you have a special place in the kingdom, that you see it in the way God speaks about women and about their discernment and about what Mary is about to do that lasted for 2,000 years and will last for another 2,000 years in terms of understanding that Jesus would die. The rest of them are sitting there not coming to terms with it. The disciples didn't understand it. They didn't know that Jesus was about to die, but this woman did. This woman did. And so we're going to understand that. And so I want you to understand something. Somebody said it's intuition. It's more than intuition, brother. It's more than intuition. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit delivered by being at the feet of Jesus. You want the Holy Spirit to speak to your life? You You stay at the feet of Jesus. And every time you see Mary's name, you see her at the feet of Jesus, worshiping him praying to him, elevating him, studying him. And when you do that, you can't come away without understanding who he is. Believe me, I want you to understand that. And so I want you to reflect on this last week of Jesus' life. I want you to reflect on this last week. And shortly, he is going to walk into Jerusalem. And as he walks into Jerusalem for the last time, and he knows it's the last time, the people, the people are going to lay down palms in front of him. And they're going to do that not because they know that he's the king of the universe, not because they know that he is God's son, but because they think, frankly, most of them think that here is our political leader who will help to throw off the yoke of Rome. They didn't get it. They didn't get it. And there they are throwing down these palms. And Jesus recognizes that they they don't get it, even as he's walking in. Uh, and he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how my heart weeps for you. Uh, and my heart is broken for you, understanding this. And I want you to get this vision 
of what Jerusalem was like that last week, those last seven days. All right? And this is all about five days or so before the Passover that's going to come. And so in order to have the Passover, every family had to have a sheep. Every family unit had to have a sheep. And I told you from studying Josephus and some of his writings that looked at a, a census during that week, that there were 250,000 sheep that were sacrificed that week. How do you like that number? 250,000 sheep sacrificed in Jerusalem that week. What does that mean? It means that most likely there was an influx in Jerusalem of about 2.5 million people. This blows my mind. When I was growing up and reading scripture, I never thought of this. I thought of Jerusalem as some little walled-off city, who knows, maybe 40 or 50,000 people, you know, people, everybody walking around in robes, and you, you know, you, just, you get this sense instead, at this point, it's like a metropolis. And Jesus Christ is walking in. And one of the other things that I realized as I studied this, that as Jesus is walking in and ultimately sits on the uh, uh, cult that had never been written, written before in accordance with the prophecy of Zechariah, so that, that that portion of prophecy would be proven correct, as he's doing that, effectively think of this. He's coming in surrounded probably by 100,000 sheep. Does that strike your heart? That our Lord and Savior, who would be our ultimate sacrifice, our ultimate Lamb of God, would be traversing in, surrounded by the sheep that were the animals of sacrifice for 1,400 years before for Judaism. As God puts it all together, as God winds them and weaves the ropes of prophecy coming all together, and so here you see something, and I want to say it to you that you understand it. You, you look at the three main protagonists in this story at this point. First, you have the religious elite. You have the religious elite who are closed-minded, who don't want to see anything, who have determined he's got to die. Why does he have to die? Because he's undermining my personal kingdom. I'm going to lose money. I'm going to lose position. I don't care about the people. It's about me, me, I, I. This guy's got to go. This guy's got a toe, uh, even, even though he says it's better for one man to die than a whole nation to perish. He didn't care about the nation. He didn't care one whit about the nation. He cared about himself. Uh, and that's what you often see when it relates uh, to religious elites. Um, and, and furthermore, then you look at the people. And this resonates with me. I want you to think about that two and a half million people that were in Jerusalem. And yes, the Bible tells us here that they were, that they were asking, is Jesus going to come? Is he going to show up? They knew about the decree. They knew that there was a decree of death. Is Jesus going to show up? What's he going to do? And yet, think about them. There they are. What are they concerned about? Are they looking for Jesus? Are they looking to elevate Jesus? Are they looking to address him and raise him and affirm him as the Son of God? No. What are they doing? They're concerned about their religious practices. Let's get this Passover done. Let's get the lamb done. We gotta, we gotta make certain that we have done our religious practices. And I would say to you folks, I want you to think about this. How many people do you know who are really 
obsessed with their religious practices. And the question becomes, are we so obsessed with our religious practices that we have lost Christ? That we can see Christ coming? And instead of seeing Christ coming and embracing Christ, instead, what do we say? We have to be concerned about the Passover. We have to get the sheep. We have to do our things. We have to be concerned about the law. And so that's what you see here, that God himself is in their midst. God himself is about to come in, and yet they are not going to embrace him. They are not going to embrace him. But look at Jesus. He is waiting for the precise moment to enter Jerusalem. He knows the scripture. He knows what's happening. He knows what's going to happen on the Passover. He knows that he will be the ultimate sacrifice. And so Christ waits. He waits until everything, everything comes together. The gates of hell itself, the gates of hell itself could not keep Jesus from the cross. I want you to understand that. The gates of hell itself, nothing, no one, no power could stop Jesus from what he was to do because it was determined from the very foundation of the world. And now we go on to chapter 12. And now in chapter 12, we're going to see this dinner given to Jesus just before he will walk into Jerusalem. He's going to give this dinner. This dinner is given in his honor at, at Simon the leper's house, given in honor because most probably Jesus has cured Simon of leprosy. And so Jesus is going to go there. This party is given, this dinner, given in his honor. And I want to tell you that this is not an easy thing to do. It was not an easy thing to be a friend of Jesus and step up for Jesus. Because they knew there were warrants of arrest out for him. And those warrants of arrest included the fact that if you helped him or hid him or in any way protected him, you also were guilty. And yet you see that there are people, there are people who recognize who God is and will not be deterred. And so you can follow along as I read the first eight verses. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Don't you love that picture? Here it is. He's reclining at the table. Here's Lazarus, shortly before entombed, dead. Roll away the stone. Oh, don't roll that stone. It's been four days. Yes, roll the stone away. Believing is seeing. And here it is. He's now reclining next to Jesus. And I'm going to say this to you, folks, that I'll bet that from the moment that Jesus did that to Lazarus, I'll bet Lazarus never left the side of Jesus. You have any idea that, that that's not the case? He probably never left the side of Jesus. And the world was brought to Jesus through Lazarus. People saw this, and, and hundreds upon hundreds of people are now coming to Jesus because of Lazarus. That's the good news. The bad news is that Lazarus is going to be tried to be killed as well. Verse 3, Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But, and underline this, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. This is now the first time you're going to hear the voice of Judas in Scripture. And what's interesting is how Judas speaks. I'm going to do my best Judas imitation. <laughs> Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given 
to the poor, it was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. How do you like that? Now remember, the Gospel of John is written about 50 years after this event. And so retrospectively, John goes back and reflects on the events even as he writes it and recognized, I'm sure he recognized it after the fact, he didn't know it at the time, that this guy was a thief. He's got his hand in the money bag. They had a bag that people would, I'm sure, contribute money, and they helped poor people, I'm sure, along the way. There's no question that that's what Jesus would do. And this guy is stealing the money. And now he's outraged. Somebody would take this expensive perfume and give it to Jesus. What about the poor people? As if he had a heart for the poor people. He had a heart for himself. He didn't have a heart for the poor people. And you have to see that here when you see evil ensconced. And by the way, you also see how our acts of charity and goodness and righteousness are denigrated by evil. You understand that? So don't think just because God is touching your heart and you're reaching out to the world and you're doing things that are elevating Jesus Christ, don't think there's going to be a brass band for you. Often there's not. Often there's going to be criticism as people are going to, are going to say things that are, that are awful about what you do. And you know what's bad here uh, about this lesson? You read it from other, other gospel writings and you'll see that the other disciples agreed with Judas. They said, yes, this should have been done. Uh, and they uh, really rebuked Mary. You see how easy it is for evil to permeate even good? Evil to permeate even good? And you see that here. But look at Jesus. Look at the words of Christ as, as he stands up and, and really addresses this. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. And so what you understand here is that Mary understood Jesus was about to die. He was about to die. He was about to give his life as a ransom uh, for Christians, for those who had given, given him everything. And so there she is. She took the most prized possession that she had, and she broke the perfume. In other words, she broke the box gave it all up, didn't keep anything for herself, but gave it all to him. Now, as I've studied this passage, one of the things that I've learned is that that perfume was most likely worth 300 denarii. And 300 denarii would be uh, the savings for an entire year's wages. One year's worth of wages. What does it mean? It means most likely that Mary had saved her whole life, and this was the sum and substance of everything that she had. And here's the other thing. Bible commentators suspect that most likely this was her dowry. How does that resonate with you, ladies? And if you were in that period, and you lived then, and you had any expectation of being married, you needed a dowry. No man was going to come and take you as a wife unless you had some amount of dowry. And here it is. Here it is. She doesn't care about herself. She doesn't care about whether she'll be married. She doesn't care about her savings. She gives it all 
up to Jesus. What a moment this is. What a moment this is. And so you see this, and it's so, it's so incredibly powerful to me as we see it. And so one of the things that you learn from this passage is that Lazarus himself is in jeopardy. They want Lazarus dead as well because he's bringing people to Jesus. And so you see that Jesus knew he was about to die, and Mary knew he was about to die. And how did Mary know when there's 17 other people or so in this house and nobody else had a clue? Nobody else had a clue. She knew because she had spent her life at the feet of Jesus. She knew because she had spent there, because she worshipped him, because she knew who he was, because she studied him. She studied his words, and you see it, uh, and you see how, how critical it was. And I want to show you something. that Jesus had spoken to his disciples about it, but they were clueless. They still didn't get it. Turn to Mark chapter 10. We'll start with 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem, that's Jesus and the disciples, with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be portrayed so the chief priests and te- to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Clueless. Clueless, because later, in the upper room, when they're effectively having the Last Supper, they're going to sit there and talk about the fact that he shouldn't die, he doesn't have to die, they'll stand up for him. Peter tells him, I'll never let this happen. And Jesus tells him, oh, yes, you will. You're going to betray me three times. And frankly, you want to get the best view of the fact of how little they understood. You read the passage about the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, right? There's, that gives you an insight as to where their mind was. There they are, traveling on a Sunday. They've been to Jerusalem. They're now crestfallen. It's all been a waste. It's all been in vain. Nothing has mattered. Now they're crestfallen, and they're walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus, which is about a distance of about eight or nine miles. And as they walk, they're crestfallen, and all of a sudden, a stranger, a stranger joins up with them. Uh, And the stranger says, why are you so sad? What's the problem? Oh, where have you been? You haven't heard what happened in in Jerusalem the last couple days? Oh, Jesus, who we thought was the Messiah's dead. He's dead. He's dead. It's all over. It's all over. Uh, And Jesus said to them, oh, oh. You haven't really studied the scripture. You didn't see what it says in the scripture. And from the beginning to end, and over a period most likely of about four or five hours, Jesus gives the greatest single Bible teaching probably that ever took place. The greatest. Because Jesus takes the scriptures. He takes the scriptures and he shows verse by verse, chapter by chapter, exactly why he would die on the cross. And as he does this, he weaves it. Can you imagine what that had to be like? And showing that he didn't die in vain, that it was determined from the beginning of time that he would come as a sacrifice. These two guys were disciples, and they didn't get it. And they didn't get it. And yet Mary got it. You understand? Sometimes how even when you're, when you're as close as you are, you still don't get the truth about Jesus. 
and finally there they are. Oh, oh, stay tonight. Don't go on. Have dinner with us tonight. They prevailed on him, and Jesus says, all right. And there they are at dinner, and Jesus takes the bread, and he breaks the bread. And in that physical act of breaking the bread, their eyes are opened. Their eyes are opened. It's like, oh, 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 it's Jesus. Can you imagine? And Jesus disappears. And Jesus disappears. And so you see, I want you to understand this. The disciples didn't have a clue. They didn't have a clue. And that's why they scattered, even while Jesus is going through crucifixion. They scattered, but they later understood. They later came to terms. They later recognized who Jesus was. And so here is, here is Judas. And by the way, Judas is, is denigrating Mary because she's going to waste uh, this gift, which was worth about 300 denarii. You should know that in about three days, four days, Jesus will sell, uh, Judas will sell uh, Jesus to the chief priests for about 120 denarii, or about half of what Mary has given to Jesus to elevate him and to affirm him. How do you like that lesson? He'll take half the money. He'll take half of it to sell Jesus down the tubes. There's your guy who's worried about the poor people. You understand? You see the evil. And so this was an unbelievably extravagant act. As Mary stepped up and saying to Jesus, I love you, Lord. I recognize what this sacrifice is about. I recognize that you're about to die for me. She's demonstrating that she's giving up her most precious possession. Everything that she owns. She doesn't own anything that compares to what this is. Everything she has is now being laid out for the Lord. Everything. This is my dowry. I don't have anything else. I haven't held back. It's all yours, God. It's for you. I give it to you. And what a lesson that is. And Jesus later says that what she did that day will be remembered for many years to come. How do you like that? This simple woman outside of Jerusalem in a little village town at a dinner that nobody would ever notice for any other reason other than this simple, devout woman would recognize who Jesus was, what he was going to do, and gives him this great sacrifice of herself. Let that be a lesson to you. You want a legacy? You want a legacy that will last forever? There's your legacy. There's your legacy with your family, with your friends, your acts. What you do for Jesus, what you do for Jesus will never be forgotten. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you for the lesson that you've given us. I thank you for your words, Father. I ask that they resonate with us this week as we continue to understand the nature of who you are and the sacrifice you've given to us, Lord. Bless our people. Protect them this week and bring them back safely next week to continue the study of your word. We put all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for listening to 66 Lessons for Life, the men's Bible study taught by John Garippa and recorded live at the Naples Conference Center in Naples, Florida. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding so that you, the man of God, would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. For more information about the program or attending the Naples Men's Bible Study at the Naples Conference Center, go to our website at 66lessonsforlife.com.